You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Tom Pick, a B2B marketing consultant and founder of Webiquity. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, James. Yeah, glad we get to chat today. I, I thought we'd you know, start off and learn a little bit more about your journey. How did you get your start in marketing? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, 18 or 19-year-old Tom, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I, literally none. I was like, something in technology was about as close as I could come to what I wanted to do. So um, went to college, which majors four times, ended up with a, a major in engineering and a minor in English literature. So that's how confused I was, <laughs> uh, which of course led me into tech writing. And uh, I, yeah, so I started as a, as a tech writer at a company that uh, developed digital prepress um, equipment. And uh, that was okay, knew it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. But the, uh, the marketing team started inviting me to go to trade shows with them because I had the technical knowledge to actually set up and tear down the equipment and even fix things on site if needed. And, uh, and, and it was safe to leave me in the booth alone. Uh, it wouldn't be a disaster. So um, started to really enjoy that and, and really enjoy working with that team. Um, went back to school, got my MBA, went into marketing, and pretty much literally from that first day of, of B2B technology marketing, I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. So did so you I, go back to get the MBA with the express idea of saying, hey, I'm going to make a career change, go into marketing more full tilt because I'm loving the trade shows, I'm loving the B2B experiences I'm having, and that was kind of a ch- conscious choice to, to shift paths a little bit? Yeah. So the MBA was with a, was with a marketing concentration and... Uh, I needed some of that academic backing because I really hadn't had any marketing classes in my my engineering slash English literature uh, adventures years earlier. So um, that was a very helpful foundation. Of course, a lot of what they taught you in MBA school about marketing, especially back then, um, very quickly in the real world, you realize, oh, that doesn't really. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm grateful. You know, I was a business student and I had some very interesting marketing classes, but I would say the practical experience, you know, doesn't come close to the, the class. What you learn outside being a practitioner of this is really what's valuable. Exactly. Yeah. Great. So what are the resources just to, not to take too much of a left turn, but, you know, for <laughs> marketers just starting out, obviously, you know, you can go to take marketing classes and everything else. There's lots of great podcasts and books and resources these days. What do you recommend for, you know, young folks who are interested in getting into a career in digital marketing? Yeah, and again, very different world today from, from when I got started. There's there's so much more information available online. I mean, I still think it's helpful to start with a foundation of some of the, um, not necessarily the academic text, but some good books by actual marketing practitioners. Any of the Seth Godin stuff, actually, is pretty yeah, good. Yeah, um, There's a book by Rebecca Lieb on SEO. That's a very thin, very easy read. That's a great foundation for, for that kind of thing. Um, so I would start with some good books, but you're right. There are, for the more you know, current what's really happening right now, there are so many blogs and podcasts and things, um, uh, specifically within my realm in, in B2B tech marketing. There's a website called. Um, uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> That's okay. It's Thursday. We're all uh, fighting our way to the end of the week. Um. B2B marketing zone, sorry. Yeah. Mental blurb there. Um, 
anyway, that's a great, it's a, it's a sort of a content aggregation site. So there's like uh -huh. 200 bloggers, B2B bloggers that contribute. So there, there's just a ton of content there from, you know, some of the really, some of the best thinkers in the, uh, in that space today. That's and that same company actually has some similar sites for like HR technology and e-learning technology and a couple other things. Mm -hmm. So there's those kinds of sites, those aggregation sites are a great place to kind of browse and, and see what's happening and, and, and grab onto a lot of um, great sort of very current thought leadership content in a very timely way. Very good. And I know you do a lot of that work yourself, right? Both on the Wabiquity site and then also in, in some of the writing that in, in work that you share. So let's talk a little bit more about Wabiquity, which you founded in early 2017. What was the original inspiration? Well, so I'd been, uh, I spent about 10 years with an agency after I, I spent about 14 years in the corporate marketing world, and then about 10 years with an agency. So I was work, doing a lot of working consulting kind of marketing work with B2B tech companies and really enjoyed that. Um, was briefly lured back into the corporate world. Uh, very bad fit. The company wanted me to relocate. My wife had no interest in moving. So that kind of didn't work out. And when I left there, uh, I, I sort of thought about what was the next step. And I, again, I'd really enjoyed, you know, consulting and working with B2B tech companies. Um, didn't really want to go back to an agency after, you know, by this time I'd been around the block and so to speak. And after all those years of, of working with agencies from both sides, right, being in the agency world, as well as being a client on the corporate side, uh, I knew what I liked about agencies and what I didn't and decided I wanted to do the kind of thing that to, to, to create sort of the kind of digital marketing agency that I would want to hire if I were on the client side. And uh, not to you know throw any stones, but I, I saw some you know, unethical things being done and, and things like that. And I'm, I'm not about that world. And so I really wanted to focus on, on creating a, a business um, and services that are very um, uh, very transparent and, and just provide a lot of value without, um, you know, without any games. There we go. That's what it's all about. So you started the business. Had you considered yourself an entrepreneur up until this point, or was this kind of your first, you know, venture kind of stepping out and doing something on your own? Great question. Actually, I know not at all. I was, <laughs> I was a very reluctant entrepreneur. Um, like I say, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of in the agency, because the agency was a, was a virtual agency, so I was semi-independent, um, but really had, the, had the, um, the luxury there of having the head of the agency brought in most of the business. And so I was able to pretty much just, just work on things for clients and not really have to sell. Um, and I've never thought of myself really as, as a salesperson. And so that part of it was, was very difficult for me. But uh, I also looked at it almost as a, sort of a risk mitigation strategy, if you will, because if you, you know, if, if you work for a company and you lose your job, you lose 100% of your income. Uh, if you have half a dozen clients, as I do at any given time, give or take, um, I mean, I, I don't lose them often and I certainly prefer not to, but if I do, uh, you know, it's at most 20%. I'm still, I'm still bringing in 80% of my income and I can spend that other 20% of my time, you know, looking for a a new client. So mm -hmm. in that way, it, uh, it's, it sort of mitigated risk. Another way to look at it is, like I say, I didn't, didn't think of myself as a natural salesperson, but in a way, any professional is a salesperson in the sense that, so when you, if you go for a job interview, you are selling yourself mm -hmm. right to this company. 
And you're selling a big ticket item because for a company to bring on any kind of senior talent in any position, marketing, finance, engineering, whatever, I mean, it's a, it's a six-figure sale, right? And there's, there's onboarding time, there's all of mm-hmm. those things. So it's a very significant investment for the company. Whereas selling consulting services is very flexible. Um, there's no real commitment. There's mm-hmm. not a ton of training time. They don't need to um, devote office space to me, although that's becoming less of an issue. Yeah, <laughs> true. Pandemic. But uh, right, so there, it's, it's, a, it's a much, in a way, it's a much easier sale, right? Because it's a much lower price point. Mm-hmm. And even if the client ends up spending, you know, a fair amount of money with me over time, mm-hmm. uh, it's not that six-figure sticker shock thing right yeah. on the gate. Makes sense. Very good. So when you started the business almost, you know, four or five years ago at this point, what was the hardest part of being a first-time founder? Uh, well, again, sales. Hmm. <laughs> because um, I really struggled with that at first. And then finally, after talking to enough people, realized that it wasn't about selling, right? It was about having good conversations, understanding mm-hmm. Um, what kind of problems people were facing and how I might be able to help them and just saying, hey, I think I could help you with, you know, this and this. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Um, and once I sort of got over that hurdle and realized it wasn't, hey, how are you doing, James? I got, I got a deal for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that an important philosophical shift, right? <laughs> On the one hand, I would argue that there are a lot of people, probably myself included, I'm not a classically trained salesperson. I've done a lot of you know, that activity, business development for our business, other businesses, but I haven't ever gone through a formal sales training program. I've read a lot of books. I've met people, good examples, bad examples on the topic. And so I think there's that natural tendency to feel like I don't want to be a used car salesman is kind of the analogy people leap to in their mind. But if you can lead with value, if you're there to solve a problem, if you're very consultative in the way it sounds like you are, or you're leveraging relationships and just trying to be helpful and add value to people, that's what will lead to success. And I think the nature of effective selling has changed over time, right? People have gotten smarter. A lot of people are doing their own research now uh, online through your, you know, your content marketing or other resources. And so, you know, you have to provide that value in order for people to really take it seriously to consider the sale. Exactly. So, yeah, like I say, once I made that sort of mental leap, it it got a lot easier. And um, I, I I had had a couple of very lean months out of the gate. But, uh, you know, like I said, once, once I, I sort of got past that and then just started reaching out to my network and, and, and kind of approaching it that way, um, things, you know, grew fairly quickly and, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's done well, except for a little bit of a lull last summer, COVID related. Sure. Um, it, it's been solid for most of the four years. Very good. So now you've worked in B2B marketing for 25 plus years, right? What are the biggest changes you've observed over that time? Oh my gosh, so much, so much stuff. Um, I mean, I, I uh, first got into marketing really kind of just before the the internet really started taking off as a thing. And so it was still, I was still buying print advertising and buying printed brochures and things from, from printers, sure. um, lots of paper uh, for a brief time period. And, um, even, even during that time realized how, how screwed up the, um, the publication model was, um, the cost of advertising and like, uh, uh, Mac world or Mac, you know, whatever magazine was, was just outrageous. Um, 
the, the internet obviously changed, <laughs> changed those economics completely, but that was, that was sort of one of the first things, um, you know, and then blogging came along in the early 2000s. Um, and I started sort of dabbling in that and got serious in, in 2005 with my first blog, which I actually sold uh, five years later and then started Wibiquity and that, that's the blog I've had since 2000. Oh, terrific. So what was the, what was the original blog? It's called Web Market Central, and I think it's still active, but um, it's, yeah, it's been under different ownership for quite a few years now. Mm -hmm. uh, social media in sort of the late zeros, right, started to take off, and, and that was, was very interesting. I was fairly early on Twitter and um, some of those places, and, 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 and that would, I, we could talk a little more about that, but that was kind of an interesting ride. And of course, the... Um, I'd say kind of the 20 year evolution of SEO, right? Because there's SEO has existed for basically as long as search engines have, which was, you know, late nineties. Um, and watching it go from really a game of trying to fool the search engines, right? Which is what it was uh, initially. Um, keyword stuffing and white text and hiding text behind images. And, you know, all those ways we can, we can fool the search engines and then they got smart to that. So then it was links. Uh, link farms, um, there were hundreds of web, quote unquote, direct business directories that were nothing more than, you know, places to add links. Um, and then the search engines got smart to those. So it's really, it's evolved and it's, it's, it's become a much better practice really over time because it's gone from that kind of a little bit sleazy kind of manipulative thing to really today, you can't possibly outsmart the search engines. You have to give them what they want. And what they want is to be the best answer for any query. And so there's no, there's no secret, there's no trick anymore. It's just, how do you do that? How do you be the best answer for the people who are looking what it is you have to sell? And so it's, it's a much, actually much better place to be today. It's, it, it, again, for a someone with ethics, it feels a lot better doing SEO today. Really. And ultimately it's evolved to serve the user experience, right? You have to ruthlessly exactly. prioritize what is the person who's conducting the search, trying, what's the information they're trying to glean and therefore serving that up every time. And then the last one, I guess, is, is really kind of going back to the start of, of Webiquity, the blog in 2010, was this notion of uh, there, there was sort of a well, you know, what do we exactly call what it is we're doing today? Because it was beyond SEL, right? SEL was part of it, but it wasn't, there was more to it than that. There was social media was part of it. So SEO and social, okay, but there's more to it than that. So we you know, kind of, what is this thing called exactly? And I started using the term WPO for web presence optimization which is really sort of bringing all that together, search and social and influencer marketing and um, being on different platforms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what we call PR would be part of that, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of bringing all that, how does all that work together and fit together to really make a company uh, have as much online presence, as much online visibility as possible when someone is looking for you know, what it is they sell. And so that's kind of the, the concept that I've been, um, evolving and 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 trying to continue to make better and, and continually changing just because the uh the options change right the the, the social networks change the publications change the um uh, vertical websites pop up right things like that the, the the opportunities constantly change so continuing to try to keep that up to date 
as a as a practice and and also an approach mm-hmm. to, uh, to helping clients. Yeah, big time. And you know, I think when most people think about social media marketing, influencer marketing, our minds immediately jump to B two C, right? Okay, how do <laughs> what do we do on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook? But obviously, everything looks completely different in a B two B context. So, talk to us about what are the most important platforms or you know channels to reach an audience for B two B marketers today. Yeah, it is a very different world. Um, and I actually have a blog post coming out next Tuesday on the biggest difference between um, B2C and B2B influencer marketing, which I can't give that away. So, <laughs> so that's can, it. Sorry, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> um, no, it's, so it's interesting. So, I mean, social media, uh, social media marketing as a concept, right? If you look at like Google Trends, when did that kind of take off? And it was right around uh, end of 2008, beginning of 2009. Influencer marketing was like seven years later, end of, uh, end of, end of 2015, beginning of 2016 was when that really started taking off. So to me, the, the, the um, uh, social media marketing on a B2B side was, was sort of struggling and flailing at first until it found out what it wanted to be. Right, because when when businesses first started marketing on social media, too many of them were like, "Oh, free advertising," yeah, right, and just putting brand messages out there. And of course, mm-hmm. that's not what people want to follow. No so way. It, it yeah, and so it was like, "Oh, that's not working." Um, we actually need to create content that people want to read, and so they started doing that, which was better, but it was still you know sort of brand slanted. If you were writing about ERP software and you were an ERP software vendor, I mean, you were you know going to be a little bit biased mm-hmm. of course um and the, the meanwhile the as i mentioned the trade publications right their business model had completely changed and it was they were they were sort of struggling to uh, uh to keep fulfilling their kind of traditional role of being a little bit more of an independent voice mm-hmm. and so that's when you started to see the rise of b2b influencers these were people some of them worked inside corporations but others were analysts or they were consultants um, service providers, whatever they they were they were related to the space developers, so they understood their their space, but they weren't necessarily tied to a, a specific vendor, and so they kind of started filling in that role that the publications had once had, um, and also I mean, influencers have been around forever, but. Pre-internet days, it was really hard to become known. Mm. You had to write a book usually. Um, you had to have a publisher because even if you just paid a print shop to print your book for you, where were you going to sell it? Amazon didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so, so there were all these gatekeepers, right? So, Distribution was right, super limited. Was, yep. Right. Um, what, what, what the internet has done is broken down all those barriers to entry. So now you can, you can start a blog for basically nothing and you can start promoting it on social media and building a following for nothing more than, you know, spending some time there and and reaching out to other people um anyway so that started to uh to expand and and so again i think influencer marketing is sort of where where b2b social media marketing has found itself um finally really fitting after all of these years and it's about it's about the way that b2b brands and influencers can mutually help each other it's not about you know, here's a hundred dollars, go do an Instagram post for me, right? Like the B2C side. It's more about uh, building relationships and and co-creating content and really 
the, the influencers want to gain influence. The um, B2B brands want exposure. So there's a natural fit as far as I'm working together in a, in a mutually uh, productive way that's not, not just transactional. It really is about building relationships over time. Yeah. And do you find that most of that activity is confined to LinkedIn and Twitter? And in my mind, that's kind of the platforms that jump out to me as B2B, but are there other places where that lives too? Um, a little bit on Facebook, but those uh, LinkedIn is by far, by far number one. Twitter actually used to be. They've, mm. um, those two networks have kind of traded places over time as Twitter yep. has gotten more, you know, <laughs> Trying to do too many things, right? I feel like Twitter's uh, getting very bloated, yeah, a little bit watered down, and they've got failed to execute. And, yeah. and, uh, I mean, I, there's definitely a place for a platform like that in B2B, which is, mm-hmm. you know, one advantage of Twitter over LinkedIn is it's more conversational. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it lacks a lot of the um, uh, targeting features and, and things that, that LinkedIn has. Um, and uh, there, there isn't really, like I say, Twitter has, has kind of declined a, a bit. I mean, it's still, it's still valuable for B2B marketing and for influencer marketing in particular, but it's, it's, it's not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so there, it seems like there's a space for either, you know, I've, I actually wrote a post a while back about, you know, Twitter for business, like they mm-hmm. should s- segregate, right, this part of the network and get rid of all the, um, you know, celebrity gossip and, and the weird hashtags and, um, um um, political hate stuff <laughs> and just really focused on on verified accounts and the business users mm-hmm. uh, that's one possibility um you know parlor popped up that clearly wasn't going to be the alternative that was just sort of a a far right-wing version of the political hate stuff so that you know that wasn't uh that wasn't going to fly as a, mm-hmm. as a again an alternative for b2b marketers so there's an opportunity there and i think i think if twitter is smart they'll take advantage of it and if they're not, someone else will figure it out and, and jump in. And now we have Clubhouse, right? I see a lot of people in our space spending a lot of time on Clubhouse, very excited about the potential, really enjoying the audio format. Obviously, Twitter, you know, launching spaces to compete, making some acquisitions to, you know, be a little bit more aggressive in the space. And then others, Facebook rumored to be working on a Clubhouse competitor. What's your take on that space? Uh I mean, it's 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 a really interesting platform, and obviously they're attracting a lot. Their their model, right, of of creating scarcity um, by the invitation only. That's that's really helped them um, launch and get some traction very quickly, and a lot of exposure very quickly. It's um, one criticism I've seen of it that I that I sort of think is valid is the the notion that it's 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 ephemeral, right? It's you've got you've got to be there in the moment. It's not. Nothing is recorded and stored. You can't revisit a conversation later, um, and it's, it's it's a little bit tricky in the B two B world because people are busy <laughs> during the day, and so to I don't know to kind of take time out and, and listen in, um, unless it's something uh, you know really compelling. Um, I just think that's harder to do. So I do think the the asynchronous nature of of platforms like LinkedIn. Um, or blogs, right? Because once a blog post is out there, it's always, or YouTube, once a YouTube video is out there, mm-hmm. it's always there. Um, yeah, YouTube really feels underutilized for B2B marketing. It's it's definitely picking up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also alluded to, uh, you know, trade publications, right? So these online uh, groups or, or bodies that might hold events, oftentimes they monetize through, uh, you know, content and maybe journalism covering the space. 
I'm curious to get your take on this, right? That a lot of these claim to be these independent bodies that are trying to advance the, you know, the ambitions or the goals of, of the industry as a whole. And yet, in many cases, they, they seem to be a little bit beholden to their member base, right? It's the big companies in that space are going to be their advertisers. They're going to sponsor the events. They're going to be, you know, the ones kicking in the uh, the membership fees if it's an annual sponsored model. So in your experience, how much of these things are truly, you know, the independent bodies that they claim to be and, and how much are they too handcuffed to their, their member base to really speak with authority or, or, or be very open about, you know, what's really pushing the industry forward? So I guess a couple of things. One is is it sort of varies, right? It's not. I don't want to. I don't want you know. Sure. Commit the sin of grouping them all in, in, into one. Um, they're all the same kind of thing because because they're really not. There are there are, there are certainly some that do a much better job of of maintaining that independence than others. Um, I think back to the um, um, the '90s when. Um, uh, computer world and info world were writing about, I was in the ERP space at that time, and they were brutally honest about, like SAP had a lot of implementation problems, and they were brutally honest in reporting those. I don't see that kind of, that kind of journalism really anymore. Um, I think SAP has gotten a lot better, but uh, um, SAP and Oracle and some of those, uh, Bond, which was a, a big player in the late 90s and early zeros, um, so this, it's, you know, we're, I, I guess we're missing some of that, but at the same time, again, I think that's where the influencers are kind of filling the gap because they don't necessarily have those relationships. And as long as they're open about, you know, how they're, how they're doing business, um, they have credibility in not necessarily attacking companies, but pointing out um, those shortcomings. Mm -hmm. And then also um, even the, 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 uh, the software review platforms, Captera, G2, GetApp, yeah. Those, although you know the, the the vendors are trying to find their their best and happiest customers to write reviews for them, um, there's some interesting stuff in there because um, people there's 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 right there's sort of two kinds of customers who will bother to take the time to write a review. And one is if you really you really are a brand advocate, I really love this product. I'm going to take ten or fifteen minutes to go write something nice about them because I really believe in it. Or I have just had the worst experience ever, and I'm going to tell I have the to world let everybody about it. know about it. Yep, so, yeah. The world. So, um, so they kind of they kind of fill that gap as well, I think. Yeah, and I've noticed that those uh, review sites have built huge domain authority, right? Really strong from an SEO standpoint. So, Absolutely. you know, if you want to rank in, hey, what are the top ERP platforms, right? You have to, I mean, you have to kind of play their game a little bit these days. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about events and conferences, right? That's historically been, you know, such an important element of B2B marketing, which has been largely absent over the past year, given the pandemic, so much of this activity is moving online. I'm curious to get your thoughts on what has that impact been? Has it been challenging? Is, it, is, are, is the future of events going to change as a result? Are we going to see this pent up demand? And as soon as vaccines are rolled out, everyone's going to be dying to get back to those conference halls. What do you predict? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, a couple of things. On the one hand, it's, I mean, it's really been devastating to a lot of people, which is very sad. I, I do quite a bit of work in that space. And so I know a lot of, a lot of suppliers, a lot of vendors in the space, and it's been um, really, really hard on so many people, people in travel, um, venues, um, sound and lighting people, uh, even to some extent event planners, right? They just, I mean, they're, they're, 
their um, demand essentially went to went to zero. Um, people in, in the entertain live entertainment mm-hmm. world, and again, not worried about you know the big stars; they'll be fine. But it's more of the you know the, the regional bands, um, the, the the lesser known. Um, the kind of acts that you might see pop up on uh, America's Got Talent, that sort of thing, right? They haven't really made a name for themselves yet. And so live performances are what they rely on. And, they, and they've been, um, a lot of them really impacted, neg- you know, obviously really negatively impacted by this. Mm-hmm. I think the government has helped a bit, but of course, you know. It's devastating. What do you do, right? I mean, it's, yeah. It's been, yeah, it's been uneven and not always well targeted. Um, on the other hand, there is the um, the old, um, um, there's the quote from the um, 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, or or the um, Kelly Clarkson song, depending on your point of reference, right? But the uh, "What doesn't kill me makes me stronger" kind of thing, and I think that applies here as well, because I think a lot of as as difficult a year as this has been, uh, I do think a lot of uh, suppliers in the events industry are actually going to come out of this stronger than ever. And really have a bright future once we finally get through this thing, because, for example, the um, the pandemic has really uh, forced or, or accelerated a lot of innovation that was sort of it had been happening anyway, but it it, it just it was kicked into overdrive right mm-hmm. by the by the fact of, of the shutdown and things having to move online versus online being just a really sort of secondary channel, you know, live events were the big thing and. And online events were like, you know, they're okay for, for this or that. And that obviously, that, that whole paradigm is, has um, completely turned around in the past year. And so once we get through this, I think the industry is going to rebound very strongly. There, there will certainly be pent up demand for live events and people will go back to doing that. But also, I think the, the audience will be permanently expanded because people have figured out that there's a lot they can do, actually a lot more they can do now in terms of virtual events than they could a year ago because um, the technology has just advanced so much. Yeah, and I think you can't replace, you know, the in-person networking and kind of those casual hallway conversations or, you know, the parties and everything else that kind of surrounds these conferences. People are still going to want to be a part of that. But, you know, for some people, it's just not practical to travel or send your whole organization. And if you can get the valuable content online, you know, there's... I can see the benefits of now your conference doesn't just reach the small pool it used to. You can actually broadcast globally to everybody asynchronously, as you mentioned, and that's really powerful. It is. And like I say, I think it expands the audience because the kind of people working inside a corporation who, you know, the company probably wouldn't have paid to fly them, you know, halfway around the country for halfway across the country for a live event. They're they're fine with them sitting at their desk and sitting in on a webinar or even, um, you know, some sort of uh, uh, online conference kind of event. Um, so it, it expands that audience. And also it's great for younger professionals who are, you know, they're, they're going to be the senior leaders someday um, and they'll be going to those live events. But when they're, when they're just starting out in their careers, uh, I think there's a lot of value in, in the online events, much more, again, much more so today than a year ago or two mm-hmm. or three years ago, right? Because now the, the, the online world does a better job of, not perfect, obviously, but a better job of mimicking that, that in-person experience. Mm-hmm. So those younger professionals can get more of a sense of, oh, how do I do the networking? And how do I really take advantage of the, the education when it's uh, multi, multi-track sessions? You know? um, 
And so they'll be better prepared for when they do get a little further along in their career and they, and mm -hmm. they start to be the ones who are flying halfway across the country for the live events. Sure. So are you noticing more of a confluence between event marketing and content marketing now that more of this activity has moved online? Absolutely. I, um, good, great question. I did a presentation on that recently. <laughs> hey, look at right that. Now. What a coincidence. Um, yeah, so I mean, so there's always been some overlap, right? Because the, and if you go back to, to prior to 2020, the two biggest things that drove um, event attendance for, for, from the attendee standpoint, the two things that attendees valued most were the education and the networking. Um, and the education piece is, is, was always much easier to kind of replicate online. The networking was terrible a year ago. Again, it's gotten better, not perfect, not a replacement mm -hmm. for real life by any means, but it's definitely gotten better uh, in the past year. Um, there's tools like Shindig that are actually kind of designed around that philosophy, right? So they're, they're all about not being stuck in your little box on the screen. You can sort of move about and connect with people and do um, <clears throat> private sidebar video chats, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, so, there's, so there's always been so, a bit of overlap between the content and the event marketing people, but it wasn't necessarily really done strategically. It was a bit more opportunistic and, and kind of hit or miss. Um, and sometimes those opportunities weren't taken advantage of and, and people didn't think too much about it. But now once the event started moving totally to virtual, well, obviously all of the content is, is created digitally anyway, because it, it has to be because you're, you're delivering it online. You're not delivering it in person. And so it's much easier to, to repurpose. And I think companies are getting more strategic about it, about, oh, we're creating all this event either for the event or during the event or whatever. And we can really do a lot more with this um, in terms of turning it into to videos, chopping it up and turning it into special purpose videos. Um, there's some you know really, really solid, low cost, easy to use video editing tools that that make that pretty easy to do today. Um, you can repurpose right a, a video session like this as audio only for a podcast. You can get a transcription of it, turn it into a blog post. There's just lots of ways to repurpose. And and again, not that it you know wasn't happening at all before, but again, I think it's people have gotten more strategic about it and are doing a lot more of it now that all the content is digital because of the, the move to online events. Yeah. Now I'm glad you mentioned podcasts because I was dying to ask you about it. <laughs> Obviously here we are in a podcast. Most of my audience is probably relatively B2B. Um, but I started this show six years ago, which makes me feel super old because you know, the <laughs> podcast wave has heated up in the last two or three years, but I just have loved it, right? It's been a passion project for me and such a fun way to connect with other really smart leaders in the space doing some interesting work and getting a chance to you know, learn from them and then share that knowledge with others. So uh, do you see more B2B brands taking advantage of podcasts as a medium to get their name out there and, and using it as a marketing funnel? Yeah, that's actually, I think one of the, um, one of the things we'll see more of in the future. And again, not, not that the idea of content repurposing is, is, is new by any means. It's been around for quite a few years, but I, I think we're, just, we're gonna see more of that. That's gonna be more of a trend of people doing things like this again, which, can be, which are easy to repurpose in multiple ways. Um, and podcasting is, is certainly one of the big ones. It was interesting they, that um, I had read something early in the pandemic um, at first, podcast consumption actually went down a bit because people had been consuming a lot of podcasts while commuting. Mm -hmm. And when commuting went away, because nobody was going to the office, 
uh, podcasting took a hit, but that didn't last. It, it bounced back uh, really quickly for various reasons, but it's, it's probably stronger now than it's, than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. And it's another channel and a great, and I, again, I would put it as, as part of that, that uh, web presence optimization or WPO model I talked about mm -hmm. earlier, podcasting is another, another component of that. Uh, if you want to get your content out there and um, um, work with influencers in the industry, I mean, that, that's another key, really another key channel for that, that kind of uh, content delivery. Yeah. And podcasts are so great for multitasking, right? You can listen to a podcast while you're doing the dishes or, you know, uh, cleaning the house. Like there's, there's so many other things that you can do when your, your, your rest of your attention is freed up. Exactly. Taking a walk, jogging, mowing the lawn. There we go. So what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of B2B marketing, what would they be? Uh, okay. Well, I just mentioned one of them, right? That I think greater use of repurposing in more formats is one. Um, another, I think, is um, uh, a continued use of, of or a continued expansion of, of new networks. Um, I mean, you know, I, when was the last time you heard anyone get excited about, oh, I found this thing called Facebook, and it's really cool what you can do there. And I, I can remember people saying things kind of like that years ago when it was oh, yeah. when it first went beyond the college phase and it started to be open up to the public. People thought it was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, and now people are like, uh, I stopped using Facebook and I'm fine with that, or I hardly ever go there anymore. Um, the, the brand image has certainly been tarnished by some of the things the company has done, needless to say. Um, so yeah, so because of, of things, because of that, that uh, suspicion of big tech and, and especially when they get you good reasons to be suspicious of it, um, there'll be an expansion of new channels because people are, are trying to get away from that. They wanna, and you mentioned Clubhouse, that's a great example. Um, people want to to explore new platforms, but also again, they they just they, they don't like having all their data stolen, uh, which kind of makes the success of TikTok confusing because um, that's even worse than Facebook. <laughs> you think so? So are you uh, in the camp that you know the TikTok data is being pilfered by the Chinese government, and you know we have cause to be concerned about the data they're collecting? I, I've seen a lot of reputable sources. Uh, Forbes, Wall Street Journal. I mean, it's not just, you know, fever swamp media. It's there, there's a lot of credible sources that say, yeah, they really kind of are. Mm. So I, I wouldn't be comfortable with it. But yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's that's another uh, a trend I think is 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 new um, channels. Um, oh, and I think the other one, uh, the other one I was thinking of, I think we also kind of um, talked about already, which was just the expansion of events because there'll be more, we're never going back to the, the place that we were a year ago. Um, the, the, the whole events industry is, is just going to expand because there's going to be a lot more, there, there, you can do more online now than you could a year ago, as I mentioned, better tools and, and you're expanding the market. So um, it just, just more, more use of event marketing. And I think people will be a little bit more strategic about um, the live events because not every event has to be live, but they have their place. And so they will really be, the, the people putting on live events will put even more effort into making them 
you know, here's a really cool destination. We've got some really interesting activities planned. Um, we're doing, you know, some great local food, things like that to really make the, the live experience stand out. Um, because now that, he, now that the, the virtual platforms are much better, um, there's gonna be more of an effort to make the live events even, even more of a special experience to make them appealing. Yeah, awesome predictions. I love all three of those. Tom, what's the future hold for Webiquity? Well, I, I mean, I love what I do and I love the kinds of companies I work with. Um, I, I really am blessed to have just uh, um, amazing clients and, um, and love to you know, get great results for them. And I, again, I just um, enjoy what I'm doing. So that's, there's kind of a couple different things. So, so first off, the fundamentals of what B2B marketing is all about, right? So it's lead generation of brand awareness. Those are the top, those have been the top two priorities for decades. Decades, yep. yep. <laughs> decades. Uh, that doesn't change, but of course, what does change constantly is, is how you achieve those, right? There's constantly new tools and new tactics that can be employed. And I love, uh, I, I'm still an intensely curious person. I love learning about those new things. I love getting results for clients and I love taking advantage of all the new ways to do that. I hope to do this for another 10 to 12 years easily um, because like, I, I enjoy it and, and just want to keep doing what I'm doing, but also uh, you know, keep, keep evolving my skills to, to stay current with, with what's available. That's awesome. One of the questions I love to ask everyone who comes on the show, given I think a lot of people who tune in are entrepreneurs and they're thinking about, okay, what's next? What's the white space out there? And I find that there's a part of your brain as an entrepreneur that you just can't turn off, right? It's constantly looking at the, the industry and saying, well, maybe we could do this just a little bit different, or I'd like to experiment with that idea. So anything like that jump out at you where if you were starting a business tomorrow, any ideas of what you would do? Uh I mean, there was actually one I was involved with a few years ago that um, for various reasons, the, um, uh, the execution part of it didn't quite work out, but um, it was about marketing measurement. And yeah, there are, there are a lot of dashboard tools and things out there now, right? The problem with most of those is that they just, they just give you numbers and, and pretty graphs and things. Um, they don't really give you insights. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, I can see that this is, is trending upwards, whatever, what does that really mean? I mean, it would, there's no, there's no prescriptive aspect to it, right? Mm -hmm. What should I do more of, less of, differently, Yep. that kind of thing. So I think a tool that could take it to that next level and really go beyond, you know, Google Analytics data and like I say, dashboards, you know, HubSpot metrics, those kinds of things and, and take it to the level of, well, this is what you should do with, here's what's happening, here's what you should do based on that mm -hmm. um there's one interesting little tool called pave ai hmm. which um uh, basically grabs your google analytics data and it does like 16 million different correlations in like 20 minutes hmm. uh <laughs> it's pretty cool and actually does some of that but again it's, that's very narrowly focused it's kind of sure, sure. purpose so i think that was in terms of a specific idea that would be one that's interesting but more generally um i i I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. I do a lot of uh, startup events. I presented at a virtual startup event here in the Twin Cities last fall. And really it's just about, um, and this is probably nothing terribly earth shattering, right? But, but really understanding a problem that a specific group of people are having, 
um, how they're solving that problem today and how you can solve it better. What's, what's you know, and, and, and think in terms of sort of, I, sometimes it's, it's really disruptive, you know, Uber or Airbnb, whatever, and sometimes it's less disruptive, disruptive just a, you know, uh, more evolutionary sort of better way to do things. Uh, quick story, and I, I have no connection to this company whatsoever. I just heard this, the CEO actually speak yesterday and thought, wow, that's kind of interesting because we mentioned ERP. I was in the ERP industry for 10 minutes or 10, 10 minutes, <laughs> 10 years. Yeah. Um, late 90s, early zeros. And that was a, so that was kind of late 90s were the really go-go time for mm -hmm. ERP because of the Y2K thing, right? The world was going to end on uh, January 1st, 2000, because all the computer systems were going to shut down. Um, and so there was just this frenzy of buying. And I, I, did, I was doing competitive research for the company I was with. And we were tracking more than 100 different vendors. And the laggards were growing at 20 to 30%. The wow. leaders were growing at 100 to 200%. I mean, it was, it was insane. But what happened was Y2K came and went. The world didn't end. Everybody had bought something. So demand just, I mean, it absolutely fell off a cliff. Mm -hmm. um, and so the industry very quickly consolidated. 80 to 90% of those companies that we had been tracking either just went away or they got bought and merged and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and that was sort of my last, you know, I, I, I left the industry in about 2005 and, and I didn't, I mean, it, to me, it, that, was, that was what stuck in my mind, right? Is that it's sort of a, an unexciting kind of stagnant replacement basis industry at this point with a few major players and mm -hmm. didn't see much exciting happening there. Well, I heard this presentation from this guy yesterday, Sonny Han, uh, who, who uh, local entrepreneur just started a company called Fulcrum, which like I said, I don't know anything other than the presentation yesterday. And I looked him up on LinkedIn because I thought this was fascinating. It's actually a brand new ERP company, which mm. seems interesting so i i asked him during the presentation that like i told him the story right sure i view this as kind of a mature, tale, right yeah. stagnant industry what uh his response is really interesting he said he said, he said you're right but but you think about it most of those big vendors um started in the 80s and their technology bases are still even though they you know they they've upgraded their technology over the time salesforce still feels like it was built in the 1990s yeah they're yeah. because they're their whole basis was as of 1989, what can we do with computers, mm -hmm. right? And it's um, even like folder file systems, very yeah. you know, linear organization structures. I did a big, um, I worked on a big NetSuite implementation at a company, you know, that feels like a lifetime ago, but back when I worked in ad tech and it was like so many of these systems still revolve around the idea that there's physical inventory, right? And we were working in advertising with perishable, you know, like, you know, intangible inventory. And it just was, like fitting a, a round peg in a square hole, it just didn't work. Right. So his his whole approach is is look, he wants to be a disruptor, right? Because he's building a brand new ERP platform based on what you can do today with with all the technologies. And it's really it's um, I mean it does the stuff that an ERP system should do, but it also is a lot more geared toward finding different sources of supply. Hmm. Um, or even creating sources of supply if necessary, right? Because supply chains have been so disrupted in the past year. Um, there were a, a few different people on the call in, in different industries and they were all talking about how you, you couldn't get things into the country, especially from China. I mean, you just, you, 
their supply chains were just completely messed up. Mm. And so a big part of what his tool does is, is again, it's about um, being really creative with sourcing and either, either finding or even uh, creating or maybe collaborating with suppliers to, to come up with new sources of supply that aren't, um, that are, that are less subject to that kind of disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and also part of the, you know, just the general effort to try to, I think, move, move more fanny, move more manufacturing to different places mm-hmm. um, from where it is now. So um, yeah, it was just, it was just fascinating. So there, there, I guess my point of that was to answer your question, even in industries that you might think of as sort of old and boring, um, there may be disruption opportunities because they don't have to be old and boring. Um, they're, the technology today allows you to do so many things that weren't possible when the, you know, the giants in whatever industry you're talking about first got started. Everything old is new again. No, I think that's very much true. And uh, I actually loved your earlier point about how traditional analytics tools uh, give you a pile of numbers, but they're not prescriptive in terms of insights, in terms of, hey, this is what's working, this is what's not working. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but my, my business partner and I are working on a new venture called Measure Studio, which is specifically doing that in social media analytics. So we you know, we have the same complaint about you look at social publishing tools, social listening tools, there are some great solutions out there, but analytics or business intelligence specifically for social data is an afterthought, right? It's like, here is the data presented much the same as you would see in your backend native platform analytics, but how do we go a step further and dig a layer deeper to say, this is what's working. Every time you have, you know, your dog in the picture does really well, or every time you use this content format or this host, like your, your content is exploding. So we are tackling a very small portion of that industry, but I 100% align with that, that people, there's so much data now that you don't have time to wade through it. And a lot of people aren't data literate to the point that they know SQL and can do queries and it's expensive to build out your own data tables and pipe that into big systems. People want something plug and play that surfaces those insights and says, hey, try this or experiment with that. That's I think the next wave of, of analytics technology. I, I would say great minds think alike, but that would, you know. <laughs> That might, that might sound conceited. So, um, no, I told you it was a great idea. There we go. There we go. Well, Tom, where can people find out more about you and more about Webiquity? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, you know, at Tom Pick. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Webiquity is my blog. If that's, that's kind of tricky to spell. So actually, if you simply type in TomPick.com, that will go to my about, it'll redirect my about page on the, on the blog. Um, or if you just search B2B marketing blog, uh, I'm usually the number one result. Hey, look at that. What new and something right in that day. So yeah, (laughs) pretty easy to find in various places. Very good. Well, Tom, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you, talk a little bit more in the weeds about B2B marketing and the evolution uh, over the past few years. So thank you again for sharing your story. Thank, Thank you, James. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, We hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.